Good morning, church. My name is Sean. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, again, if you're a guest with us, we are glad that you've chosen to gather with us. And uh, let me invite you to take your Bibles and find your way to the book of Luke, uh, Luke chapter 3, which, uh, which Paul just uh, courageously read for us with a list of all those names there in the beginning. Glad he was reading it, not me. We are working our way through Luke's gospel, and uh, I want to ask you just to imagine if somebody walked up to you and said they had seen God walking along County Line Road over by Broadway, what would you say? Now, I know it's not really a fair question to ask because we have God's Word, we know He's come once, we know we're looking forward to a different kind of second coming, I get that, but just try to imagine if somebody walked up to you and said they had seen God. He was walking along County Line Road, looked like he was headed to that pancake house or that waffle house, is that what it's over there? (laughs) Waffle house. What would you expect? Let's say you got in your car and said, hey, I'm going to check this out. What would you expect to find? Who would you expect to see? Would it be some figure like Thor or I, I don't know, right? What, what, would you, what, what do you imagine that you would encounter? Do you know that what I just told you actually happened in world history? God walked on earth. People saw him and they spread the news that they had, they had encountered God in human flesh. Come and see. And what we have in Luke is an account, a historical record of of this happening and of the anticipation that was in the world longing for the coming of Messiah, the Christ. And then, of course, the collision of all the expectations that people had about what he would be like and who he would be and what he would do. And then all those expectations weren't fulfilled as they hoped. And and the story is recorded here in one account here in Luke. Well, as we continue through the, the book of Luke... We want to remember why it was written. It was written so that there could be certainty. And again, Luke put it in his own words in chapter 1. You can flip back a couple pages in your Bible or a couple screens back to chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, where he tells his, uh, his readers, so that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And I do hope we understand that as Christians, that we're not just living with kind of a, a wishful hope in some sort of mythical fairy tale. It's not Christianity. If that's what you think Christianity is, it's just people believing that fairy tale instead of a different fairy tale, you're misinformed. Christianity is not just fairy tale belief. It is informed. There's historical record. We have writings that have been written to prove to us that what, what, is, what we believe and understand about who Jesus is, Messiah, the Christ, God sent one who came to earth to bring us back into relationship with God is true. So what do we learn with certainty about Jesus in Luke chapter 3? Well, it might surprise you that most of Luke, of, of Luke 3 is not about Jesus, really. Well, indirectly it is, but not really. It's mostly about this guy named John. And here you find yourself in a Baptist church, so we'll say it. It's John the Baptist, okay? He was going around baptizing people. Now, <clears throat> what do we learn about Jesus as we learn about this prophet, this Old Testament prophet, that we've heard about already in Luke, right? Remember the, the account of his birth being announced in Zechariah? And well, now here John is grown. 
and he's fulfilling this prophetic ministry. If you notice in verses 1 through, well, 1 through 6 of Luke 3, you've got this snapshot of all these people, dead people, right? Dead Roman rulers. Now, if you were a history teacher, this is the passage you'd say you need to memorize who each of these guys is and what they did and when they lived and, and remember this. But that's not why it's written here. It's not just written for us to have a history lesson. What I think Luke is doing here is he's tying salvation history into world history. He's tying salvation history into world history. And he's also embedding it into biblical promise. And that's what is given when he quotes from the book of Isaiah in verses 4, 5, and 6. That God's master plan of salvation is being accomplished through the events of world history and it's a fulfillment of what God has promised in biblical, with biblical promise back in the prophets, back in Isaiah. And so as we look at this list of people, they're the who's who's of the time, those that had the privilege and power of the day. Um, they're, living, um, they're, they're living out their rule and reign during this Roman Empire. Many of them were actively against God's people, against God's word. Um, notice also that Luke mentions in that list of, of Roman rulers and officials, he also mentions the high priest of ancient Israel, Annas and Caiaphas. And so what you have here is this strange intermixing of political intrigue and religious intrigue, of people jockeying for power and position, all that's going on. It's a mess. It's a political mess. Do we have any idea what it is like to live through days of political mess, religious intrigue mixed in with all that? Well, then Luke 3 is, is relevant for us today. But in the middle of all this, right, these rulers, they appear to have way more influence, far more power than this weird prophet named John who was out in the wilderness, dressed weird, ate weird food, and spoke a weird message. These Roman officials seem to have way more influence, but they have no inkling that the foundations that supported their thrones and their murderous ideologies, they would be shaken to the core by what was happening in this little unknown obscure corner of the Roman Empire beginning with this obscure prophet named John. And so this list reveals that Roman political dominance over the world is not what's controlling the story. It's not controlling the story. These people are not controlling the story. <laughs> Instead, a, trans a transcendent power is in control. God's eternal will is being accomplished. And God is moving in ways that would eventually dethrone all of these rulers here. And so I would just like for us to kind of, here we are in 2024, and are you dreading it a bit? <laughs> I appreciated John's honesty when opened the service, right? New year, some of us have these, these new ideas, but some of us maybe have some new anxieties. We're headed into an election year. Can I just encourage us to be a people of gospel culture? That remember that right here in Luke 3, there's this list of all these who's who's of the day, all these religious, all these, all these uh, uh, political rulers. They are not in control, not ultimately. Do they have a sense of control and power? Sure. But can we remember Psalm 2 that, right, the rulers are, are plotting and planning, and what is God in his throne doing? He's laughing in derision at them. And here you have in Luke 3 a little snapshot of this Roman political machinery, right? All in process and going on. And they're ruthless. They're horrible. In fact, we read how, how Herod, one of, the, one of the most ruthless of them all, locks John up and eventually beheads John 
out of spite, out of this ridiculous story that's recorded for us about political intrigue and trying to keep safe face, and he beheads him. And yet in all of this, Herod is not in control. He is not ruling and reigning, ultimately. There is a transcendent power that is ruling and reigning over it all, and it is God. And he's unveiling and and showing that his transcendent power and his saving plan will be accomplished. And can we be a people in America in 2024 that have a resolute, resilient joy and confidence in God's rule and reign? I'm not diminishing your civic responsibility. I'm not. But can we have our ultimate hope and our quiet confidence in him and not in the outcome of some election and find ourselves caught up in a frenzy and waving our swords of political positions against one another, but instead can we be a people of gospel culture that have a resilient joy and a confidence in God's will and God's plan that is not being thwarted by anyone who's ruling in Washington or any other, any other place in the world. Now notice also that as, John can, as Luke, sorry, I keep saying John because there's John the Baptist and a different John is a writer of Scripture. But Luke, as he records this, it says all this is going on. And he says that what happens is that the word of God came to John. This is in verse 2, right? During the, hype, during the ruling of the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah. And again, I think what Luke here is reminding us of is that the words of Roman rulers carried a certain amount of power. I mean... And that was true. I mean, people lost their lives based upon the word of Roman rulers. But in the middle of all of that, there was another word that was at work. The word of God. And there's a beauty here. I just want us to see this. It's very, it's very subtle. But in the middle of all of this, the, the power of Roman word ruling and killing and accomplishing their, their, their ends you have the word of God coming to John. And what's, what's beautiful here is that the word of God came to John the prophet and he would now herald and prepare the way for the living word, Jesus. And that's going to turn the world upside down. In Acts, another book that Luke writes, where we read about how these Christians who had received the word of God, who had placed their faith in the living word, Jesus, that they were, they were turning the world upside down. And so world history in verses 1 through 3 and biblical promise 4 through 6 are all presented here as John's preparing the way for Messiah, for the sent one of, of God. And so Luke tells us that John was proclaiming in verse 3, he's proclaiming something specific, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What does that mean? Ever been puzzled by that phrase? A baptism of forgiveness for the forgiveness of sins. You might read that and say, well, is that suggesting that you're forgiven you find forgiveness of sins by being baptized. No. It is not what's happening. Instead here, what John is doing is he is preaching a message of repentance, and he's baptizing, he's doing a baptism of repentance. In other words, he is baptizing those who have repented. Baptism was the sign that somebody had repented. Right? Repentance is something that you could just say you've done, right? It's happened. Well, but, but what, is the, what is the fruit of that repentance? And that's going to be going on what John is going to be calling the crowds to produce. What is a fruit? You say you've repented. Okay, prove it. And what we, what, one of those proofs of that repentance was this baptism that was taking place that he was doing. And by the way, Luke keeps coming back and back and back to this theme of repentance. 
Luke and Acts repeat this idea and theme of repentance more than any other biblical authors. And so a question here is to begin with is, have you repented? Have you? I'm not asking, are you a religious person? I'm not asking, are you sincere? I'm not asking any other fill-in-the-blank kind of expression of what you think kind of makes you okay with God. The question that Luke wants his readers to understand is, have you repented? And again, that's going to cause you to think of other questions. What do you repent of? How do you repent? What does your repentance do? And, and what does it accomplish? And we're going to understand that more and more as we continue on through Luke's gospel. Now, this quotation from Isaiah in verses 4 through 6 are describing obstacles being leveled, paths being straightened, the way being prepared so that folks could receive the ministry of God's sent one, Messiah. And the reason for that, do you, you see that in verse 6? Here's the reason for all of what's going on here. It's so that all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now, we might emphasize the idea of seeing God's salvation, which is important. But I think that there's a different emphasis that Luke has here, and I think it really rests on the, the words, all flesh. Now, what is being said here is that the Messiah, according to Luke, is going to be bringing a universal offer of salvation to all people. And we take this for granted. But in Luke's day, in the reader's day of Luke, most of, his, of, of the readers here, if you were thinking in a Jewish, ancient, ancient Israelite society, they would be assuming that God would be sending the Messiah to Israel, which he did, for their salvation. But John was preparing the way for a Messiah that would be bringing salvation to all people. And so what we have here is John traveling around, proclaiming a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, baptizing those who, who repent, the sign of that repentance being that baptism. And he likens them, well, look at verse 7. Um, was he successful? There were crowds, so apparently so. Uh, maybe we should try this out, right? Maybe the pastors here should dress in camel skin and eat locusts and <laughs> preach this fire and brimstone message of repent! Or burn! You say, well, that's what Baptist churches are known for, right? Well, hang on here. He's, he's got a measure of success, right? Look at verse 7. There's crowds that have come out, and he's in the wilderness, so it's not like it's making it easy for... He's not there on Main Street and, you know, and in the middle of town, making it easy for people to find him. People are coming out to find him. But what does he say? This is so bizarre, right? He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, this is a way to win friends and influence people, right? You brood of vipers. That's offensive, isn't it? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And his caution continues. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Wow. John didn't beat it around the bush, did he? Cuts right to it. Why is he speaking with such harsh language to these people that were coming out to receive his ministry, to hear his preaching, to be baptized? I think what John is trying to do is cut through the self-satisfied sense of false religion that prevailed in that day, and which, by the way, prevails in our day. You see, John is preaching about how to avoid the wrath to come, verse 7, and so when he calls them vipers, it's likely that he's calling to mind something that his listeners would have understood that when a brush fire went through an area, the snakes that were in their dens 
would all come up out of their dens and would run ahead of the fire out of the way. And he likens these people as basically kind of being snakes who are just, the fire is there and they're kind of in a panic and they're running up and trying to get out of the way of this, this report of God's wrath to come. But he doubts their sincerity. He doubts that they truly are repenting, that they're just trying to kind of continue to live in, their, in this false sense of their sincerity. And so he warns them from doing some outward form of religion without having a true inner work of God, repentance. So think of it this way. The way most people in ancient Israel in that day found comfort or reassurance in their position or their status or their relationship with God was that they appeased themselves that they had Abraham as their ancestor. They were part of God's people. They had, Abraham had received the promise from God and therefore they were the recipients of that through the lineage of having Abraham as their, as their ancestor. Which is why Luke is telling us. That's what John's going after here. He says, listen, he knows that the crowd is going to be saying, we have Abraham, we're okay. And he cuts right through that. He dispels them of that notion that they're going to be fine just because they're descendants of Abraham. The crowd is deluding themselves that they think that that's what's going to give them favor and status with God. He cuts through that delusion by reminding them that God can make children of God out of rocks. And so the real issue that John puts in front of the crowd is have you truly repented? Have you repented? Does your life show the fruit of repentance? He says that, right? When he says, um, every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's what he's telling them. Bring, bear fruits, verse 8. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And so that really is one of the central questions for us today, looking at Luke 3. Have you repented? Do you have fruit of repentance. If not, he likens the analogy of like an axeman having the axe laid at the, at the root of the tree. It's just poised there, ready to swing and do its work. And the idea is the axe of the wrath of God and his judgment. Now, you say, I, I doubt any of us in here have struggled with finding false assurance before God because Abraham is your descendant, or not descendant, is your ancestor, that you are a descendant of Abraham. I doubt any of us in here are relying on that heritage, but perhaps it's a different kind of heritage. I've heard folks find themselves trying to be assured that they're okay with God because, well, they grew up in a Christian home and Grandma always talked to them about God and they've always known God. And they've, been kind of, they've, they've just always been a Christian their whole life. And so, of course, they're fine with God. They've never not been fine with God. They've always known about God. But again, Luke would ask, have you repented? And do you have fruits of repentance? You see, John is not after cheap success with a bunch of false converts whose hearts have not been renewed by God himself. Salvation is not by family inheritance, it's by faith. It's by turning from sin, that's repentance, and embracing and trusting in God's Messiah, that's faith. So what about you? Here you are at church, and you might almost feel offended that the pastor would suggest that that you should examine your heart to see the true evidence of a work of God. But anybody can come to church. Anybody can show up and kind of just do religious expressions and do religious observance. That's, in some ways, easy. Because that's something you can do. You can give money. You can be faithful to services. The question is, have you repented? Have you turned 
from your efforts of self-salvation. And have you trusted and embraced Jesus as your only way of salvation? Are you trusting in your good intentions or your sincerity? Listen to the word of God from the prophet John. Have you repented? And you say, okay, well, how do I know if I've repented? Well, interestingly enough, that's where we find in verses 10 through 13 that salvation or true repentance produces a changed life. You see, Christianity is real, just like Jesus is real. Salvation is real. It's not just kind of a a status you put on your social media. It's real. It makes a difference. It changes a life. There's actions that are produced because of it, not to earn it, but because of it. And so the crowds respond to John's message, right? Because they're a bit flabbergasted. Man, if we can't just sit here and depend upon our, our, our descendancy from Abraham, making us okay with God, if we can't inherit it, then what do we do to earn it? And John answers in a surprising way. Make, make you puzzle, right? What shall we do? And he answers by telling them some things that they should do. And so you might read this and go, well, hang on now. Does that mean that we can earn our salvation or we're supposed to to work our way into having God's favor? The answer to that is no. What John is doing is he's asking them to understand that the true work of God that brings you into relationship with him, true repentance, will change how you live in these ways. It changes how you relate to other people. It's not an outside-in transformation not something that from the outside in. Do we understand that? That you kind of govern your way from the outside in. It's that God has made a change inside of you which works itself out towards other people. That's fruit. And what does he do? Well, he describes how people should treat others. He says in verse 11, very practical ways, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. There should be a spirit of generosity toward others who are in need. Tax collectors came to him to be baptized, which, by the way, tax collectors were the worst of the worst in Jewish society because they were aiding and abetting the Roman occupation on being successful. They were collecting taxes for Rome, and in so doing, they were also charging extra to pay themselves. And often there weren't controls on how much they could extort from their fellow countrymen. And so tax collectors come and say, what do we have to do? In verse 13, he says to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do interesting there, by the way. That kicks us right in our politically-minded teeth, doesn't it? John does not say, quit serving Rome and do some other occupation. Surprised? He says, do what you've been, do, do your job lawfully. Don't extort more. Soldiers come up and ask him, what should we do? And he does, again, this kicks us kind of in our our sensibilities here, right? In a politically charged time of ourselves, he doesn't tell them to quit as being soldiers of Rome. He says, what should we do? Don't extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. Be content with your wages. How do you treat other people? A fruit of repentance. I wonder how this hits us. Do you call yourself a Christian? Okay. Well, then, does your life show fruit of that confession? Bottom line is, if you, think you, if you think Christians, by the way, 
I've heard some say Christianity, you know, it's just, it's, it's terrible. It just builds a bunch of hypocrites. It just makes people that can live however they want because they think that God's forgiven them and they can live however they want or they can do whatever they want because they can just, you know, bounce to God forgive me. And they're, they're fine. Wrong. That's not Christianity. That's not repentance. The bottom line is if you think that's Christianity, that's false. That is not true Christianity because when you truly encounter God through repentant faith, according to Luke here, according to the prophet John, your life will be changed. So just look around this, Just look around here, okay? You can. I know it's kind of awkward looking around. You can do that right now, okay? Look around. This is a miracle. This body of Christ is a miracle. Because we're not after just a religious gathering of religious-minded people who want to do some sort of kind of mutual admiration society to make each other feel okay as we go through living our lives how we'd like. If you truly know God through Christ, you are a miracle of God's grace. God has produced in you something, a fruit of repentance. And in fact, John seems, by the way, has your life changed? John seems to be a pretty great prophet, Right? But, in fact, later on in this letter, Luke is going to tell us that among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. (laughs) So John is sitting in this position of high exaltation, and yet as great as John is, he points us to someone who is much greater. And that really is where Luke 3 turns towards being really Christ-centered. Jesus is mightier than the most mighty of prophets, verses 15 through 17, right? Because they hear this preaching from John, he's baptizing them, he's calling them to repent, and he's... He's got the audacity to not just be okay with a bunch of crowds that are gathered around him like all the other religious leaders, but he wants a true work of God to have occurred. And so they're struck with the genuineness and authenticity of this ministry, of his preaching, preparing the way for Christ. And these people are wondering, maybe this is the Messiah. Maybe this is the guy. Maybe he is who we've been looking for, which by the way, shows a little bit of the culture of the day of this anticipation and longing for God's Messiah to come. But instead, John clarifies that he is not the Messiah. The Messiah is someone who is far mightier than him. And here's the reason why. Because John does a baptism of repentance, but Jesus, the Messiah, is, or the Christ, I shouldn't give him his name yet, but the Christ is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. But also look at verse 17. Right? His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Again, there's this, this edginess of judgment and wrath to come and wanting people to repent. And so when John says that he is not even uh, worthy right, of loosening the, uh, the, the sandal, right? when he says there in verse 16, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. What's going on here is there's a cultural, uh, a cultural, what's the word, sense going on here. And um, has anybody ever asked you to pull their your, their boot off for you, or you know, for you ever, you know, or a shoe, right? Um, do you think it would be a little gross for somebody to? Well, we don't tie our flip-flops on that way, or sandals. Uh, I'm trying to think. I guess we don't have a cultural equivalence. But think of it. Uh, here's what was happening in the in the day: slaves, indentured servants in the day, they were required to do all sorts of menial tasks. But there was one inscription that we have where slaves were actually exempted. These indentured servants were exempted 
from one particular task because it was considered to be so menial and it was loosening the, the thong strap on a sandal, right? While walking in dirty, dusty um, Palestinian streets and all the gunk, right? I mean, feet aren't great, are they? Especially feet that have walked out in dirty streets. And so there was one task that was not required of these, of these slaves was to loosen that, 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 that thong on the sandal. And here John is saying that, he, that the Messiah is so great that he, as the greatest prophet, is not worthy to do what slaves weren't even required to do. You get the idea there? You hear what his readers would have understood? So the section that slaves were exempted from, John says, I'm not even worthy to do that task on the Messiah. He's that great. And then he uses this analogy drawn from harvest time to describe what the Messiah will do. He's going to call people to true repentance, and if people do not truly repent, they will burn under God's fiery judgment. Now, verse 18, how would you describe what John's been preaching so far? Troubling, bleak, dark, dangerous? Verse 18 is described this way. So with many other exhortations he preached, do you see it there? Good news. Good news. We need to keep this perspective, friends, that the good news of God's Messiah isn't received well by everyone. We're going to understand that because in just a moment, Herod is going to lock John up in prison. And that's where the story ends in Luke. But we understand from other gospel accounts it's not where it ended because John eventually is beheaded by Herod. So not everyone receives this as good news. In fact, maybe you're troubled about how the good news is mixed with these cautions of judgment and fire and wrath and calling us snakes who are just trying to to escape it but not really interested in in truly knowing God. You see, we only understand the good news when we recognize what God has delivered us from. Something bad. His judgment. Our burden of sin and condemnation that we deserve. And we all know that. In the quiet moments of our conscience, we know that we are guilty of actions and attitudes, things maybe no one else is aware of that are wrong, that require justice, or you have received the actions of others that are still unresolved and you know it requires justice. Where is that coming from? God. And so as as the story continues to unfold... John, of course, is confronting Herod's evil actions. Herod isn't going to have it. He's one of these ruling, evil ruling uh, Roman forces, and Herod throws John into prison. But the story isn't over because as the story continues here in Luke, in verse 21, it says, Now when all the people were baptized, which, by the way, verses 18, 19, and 20, I know we're going through a lot of Scripture here, and, and you're kind of all braced for this genealogy to come, right? Something I had mercy and didn't require Paul to read aloud, right? Because you start looking at verse 23 on, just imagine if you had to read that out loud for church someday, right? And where would you start giving up? On the name Zerubbabel? We'll get there in a minute. But verses 18, 19, and 20, when it talks about John being imprisoned, friends, we need to remember that we are living, the, the reality of the spiritual conflict is real. It's real. And let's not forget that. We are living in days of spiritual conflict. The world has always, since the fall of humanity, since sin entered the world, the world is in a place of spiritual conflict, real spiritual conflict. And that's happening here in verses 18, 19, and 20, but God's salvation history continues to unfold. And so verse 21, 
Everyone's being baptized, and Jesus is also baptized. Has that ever made you kind of just scratch your head? Why is Jesus, the Son of God, being baptized, especially when the baptism is described as being a baptism of repentance? Does that mean that Jesus had something to repent of, that there were sins that he needed to be absolved of, to repent repent himself of? And the answer to that, of course, is no. And we can be certain of that because as you read the account of Jesus' baptism, you have the Trinity showing up. You have God the Father, you have the God the Spirit in the bodily, showing up in the bodily form of the dove, and you have God the Son, himself, Jesus, who has been baptized. And a voice from heaven comes and responds to Jesus when he's praying and declares some truths about who Jesus is. And you see that there uh, in, this, in this passage in verse 22. You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. God is only well pleased in that which is holy. So if Jesus did not need to repent, then what is he doing here? And I believe what God is doing here, or Jesus is doing here, is this matters, is because Jesus is identifying himself with those he has come to save. And that's the central question that Luke is going to be answering. Is Jesus truly the Messiah, the one who's bringing salvation to, according to the prophet, all peoples, all flesh? Yes, not just ancient Jewish but to all, how he identifies with those he has come to save. Which means this, because it matters. Through then faith, if you are united to Jesus, this means then that God's declaration on you is the same as it was on Jesus. This is what the Bible means when it talks about salvation and us being declared righteous, being justified. These big biblical words, what's going on here? It's that God the Father then, if his voice were to declare upon you, it would no longer be condemned, judged, sinful, but it would be this, in you I am well pleased. That's what the Messiah is doing. He is bringing salvation to all people. How? So that when you are united to faith in Christ, you then receive this declaration from God that he is well pleased in you. And you say, well then why though? I'm not perfect. I've I've lived a perfect life. I've done all sorts of things that are bad. Exactly. That's who Messiah is. And that's what he does. And Luke is writing this so that his readers would have certainty about it. So, do you have the peace and assurance of God's pleasure on you today? Are you still trying to achieve it somehow? Are you still trying to work for it? Are you still trying to just do a little bit more, give a little bit more, be a little more sincere, show up to church another time to, to, to accomplish it? Friend, you are in an endless pursuit. You will never achieve it. Abandon your efforts of self-salvation and embrace the salvation of God's Messiah, Jesus. And you will find God declaring he is well pleased in you. Well, we'll finish up with this genealogy here in the last couple of minutes. Um, (laughs) I puzzled over this section for a while. To be frank, it takes a while to read through it. Um, If you actually read through a genealogy, there's two ways to read through a genealogy. The way normal, all of us normally read through genealogies. Yeah, done, right? It's a bunch of names you don't know how to pronounce. You just kind of get the idea. There's people you don't know how to pronounce, people you've never met. You have no idea who they are. They all had a bunch of sons, and they died, and sons, 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 sons. And it gets us all the way back to the very bottom, verse 38, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Okay. And you kind of look for the next you know, chapter. I do believe that God has some uh, good truths for us that help point us to who Christ is and what makes him qualified to be the Messiah 
of all people, bringing all people to God. But first, understand this. Glance through this list, right? There are some names that you will that you will, if you've been a Christian for a while and you've read God's Word for a while, there's going to be some names in here that you're going to, you know, be like, oh, yeah, I know that name. Any names pop out to you? I know sermons, we're not used to talking back, but here's a chance you can. Any names pop out to you in this list? David, yeah, who else? Joseph, yep, who else? Who? Abraham, who else? Huh? I couldn't hear that, sorry. Noah, okay, yeah. Now, how many of these names do not connect with you at any level? At all? Most? Most? Yeah. I thought it was for me too. A lot of these names have, I, I've, like, for instance, the son of Nagai, I have no idea who that is. I don't know what he did. I don't know. I, I have no idea. Or Josek, I have nothing to tell you about that person. I, I don't know who he is. I don't know what he did. Well, then why is it even in the Bible and why am I even talking about it as a pastor? This genealogy reminds us that, right, because many people in this list are completely unknown, but yet they're recorded here as part of God's salvation history plan. Here they are. We don't know what they did. In fact, it's likely that they probably didn't even realize that they were part of God's salvation history plan. They're just... They're just the next person in the list and they're raising their family and they're going through their life and they're trying to get their kids through school and, you know, keep their marriage together and try to fight off the wild crazies out there on the political fringes and try to survive with Roman occupation and they're just going through life and they die and their kids continue on. And, but interestingly enough, they're in this list in which connects Jesus all the way back to God at the end here. We're understand why that matters in just a minute. But this genealogy reminds us that God is at work through our ordinary days, through the ages and generations, in ways we cannot see. We cannot see. And we are probably unaware of. Really, it's, it's been said this way, and I'm quoting from one, one author, our lives may seem to be a series of disappointments, our hopes in disarray, and our futures desperate. So think about it. Did those who lived in the days of Melchi and Addy have a clue what God was preparing to do? So take heart in the mundane, ordinary chaos that's going on in your life and you think, why do I matter? What am I doing? How does this take place and fit into any sort of what God is doing? I don't know, but God does. He's got a plan. He's un- he-, he is doing it. God all along was secretly ordering the events so that all of Israel's history was moving toward the Messiah. He was the one that was sovereignly and providentially putting this into place. But there's, there's a couple of other important takeaways from this genealogy list. First, it provides proof of Jesus' royal messianic identity, which is an important part of who he is as Messiah. It directly links him. So Messiah had to be in the lineage of David, and it directly links Jesus into that legally because he's supposed to be the son of Joseph. He's not actually the son of Joseph, right? Because he's the son of God, but he's supposed to be the son of Joseph. So legally, he is in the line there of the Davidic line, He has the genealogy that the Messiah must have, being of the royal line of Judah. So that is satisfied. Second, though, it shows Jesus' connection to the human race. How? Because in this genealogy that Luke provides, he traces Jesus' um, 
beyond Abraham, the father of the Jews, he traces him beyond Abraham, the father of the Jews, to Adam, the father of all peoples. And so Jesus is not just Messiah of a Jewish perspective, but Jesus is Messiah for the entire human race. He is not only an heir to the Jewish hopes, he is heir to all of humanity's destiny. And so when Luke reminds us the story of Jesus goes back to Adam, what he's also reminding us of is that God keeps his promises. Remember in Genesis 3, when the curse is given, there's this one little, one little phrase that's given there of this promise of what's going to happen? And so what's happening here is Luke is connecting it all the way back to that word of promise that God gave back in Genesis 3. So one biblical scholar summarized it this way. The genealogy that is recorded here, it shows Jesus to be a real man, not a demigod like those in Greek and Roman mythology. Because this genealogy goes back to David, it points to an essential element in his messianic qualifications, right? He is in the royal lineage of Judah. And because this genealogy goes back to Adam, it brings out his kinship not only with Israel, but with the whole human race. But there's one more piece. And that it goes back to God. It relates him to the creator of all as the son of God, the one who is uniquely qualified to be Messiah. So whatever your thoughts are about 2024, the question for you today is, do you know Christ, the Messiah, Jesus? Or putting it in Luke's terms, have you repented? Do you have fruits of repentance? We're going to observe communion here in just a minute. Lloyd, I'll have you come and get ready to lead us in this. Friends, I want us to understand that what we have as Christians is something that is true and certain. We have the Messiah in Jesus, and he is the one that brings you to God. And so it's our, my prayer that this time of remembrance and reflection upon who Christ is and what he's done would be even more informed because of what we have in Luke 3. A God-man who is true, who is real, fully man, fully God, and bringing salvation to all people.